morning, everyone. So good to be here with you today. And uh, this uh, winter, we're in uh, going through the last part of the Gospel of John. So if you have your scriptures this morning, and I hope you do, uh, turn to John chapter 13. Uh, we're going to talk about the second half of this chapter this morning. Uh, John chapter 13. I'd also encourage you to maybe find 1 Peter chapter 3 and 4. Uh, keep your finger over in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4. And while you uh, look that passage up and turn to it, John 13, uh, I just wanted to mention real quick that uh, last year uh, our congregation paid over $300,000 off on its mortgage. And like we're down to 95. We're down to this little thread. Uh, yeah, we can celebrate. That's pretty awesome. I just wanted to give you an update. I didn't want to do it last week, New Year, starting a sermon series. But, uh, but I did want to give you an update because so many of you responded to that. A month from now, we're going to do a vision meeting, uh, a Sunday that we just talk about the future and the church. And it's possible that we could count down from 95 to zero on that mortgage within a month. I think we could do that if you guys want to give a, give a shot at it and all of us uh, pull together. We could uh, uh, use that as kind of a stepping stone, uh, a springboard into the future. But uh, last week we looked at John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And they do a lot of studies on relationships. Uh, you know, the closer you are to somebody, the more time you give them, uh, the more energy you spend on the relationship. But they also say the closer that you allow a person to get to you, like spatially. So if someone's just an acquaintance, you hold them at arm's length, and that's about two to three feet away, right? An enemy, you don't even have to, you go across the street, you know, whatever. If someone's a friend, you'll allow them within arm's reach, you know, one to two feet. You know, might give them a hug or a high five or shake their hand or whatnot. If it's a really close friend or an intimate companion, that gap closes further yet. And so I wasn't sure where to put the, you know, foot washing thing because how close do you need to be to someone to allow them to get between your toes? I mean, that's... Uh, you know, I always think about that in this passage, but, but, uh, but it's right that we consider John chapter 13 to be a chapter on love. And so in your margin of your Bible, I mentioned this last week, but write love chapter. It's like 1 Corinthians 13, just write love chapter. And there are two enormous exhibits of love mentioned in this chapter. There's two huge things that loom over this passage or loom large. And the biggest of the two by far is the extent of Christ's love for us. This is a profound chapter, a profound statement, and we are being asked to use our, our, the depths of our imagination and wonder just to get our minds, begin to get our minds around uh, the Father's love for us. And so Jesus washes the disciples' feet but this symbolic act of washing their feet was pointing to an ever greater eternal reality. And so last week we talked about how that reality is Jesus. You know, we talk about church and we talk about a lot of things, but we need to talk about Jesus explicitly with folks. Jesus stood up in the Father's presence and essentially says, here I am, send me. I will go. Uh, I will be of service to mankind. And so we saw the parallel last week between Philippians 2 and John 13 that Paul sees uh, Jesus setting aside his garment of glory, descending from the Father's right hand from heaven to earth, 
being found in the appearance of man, indeed a servant, he humbled himself, taking the nature of a servant uh, as Jesus bound himself with the cloth and the basin to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus bound himself over to death and he takes not just a basin of water, which is symbolic, but his own lifeblood. He pours it out in order to cleanse all who might repent of their sin. And so this is a picture of Jesus' self-sacrificial love. And after descending and stooping into servanthood, even dying to pour out his life for us, to redeem us, Jesus would then stand back up in resurrection, ascend back to the Father, be clothed with glory from all eternity. When Jesus had finished cleansing the disciples, he stood back up, put his outer garment back on, and and so forth, and uh, reclined at the table with his disciples. Jesus would forever establish a place for us at the Father's table, that in Christ we have a, a standing invitation to the wedding banquet, the feast of God. And, uh, and so Jesus knew where he came from. He came from the Father. He knew he was going back to the Father. And he was showing the full of extent of his love and foot washing, reenacting the gospel. He'd come to cleanse us in the most deepest and profound way that we need of sin itself, of death. And John's question, Jesus' question in John, I should say, John 13, 12, was kind of where we left things off last week. The question in John 13, 12 is, when Jesus asked Peter, do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand what I've done for you? And the superficial surface level answer to that is, you washed my feet, Jesus, thanks. But no, do you understand there's something more profound being shown you here? It's like a parable. There's always a deeper, more profound application. Now, the other feature in John 13, clearly Jesus is the reality. But the other feature of John 13, in many ways, might be more difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And it's this, having been loved so profoundly by God, having been loved by Jesus Christ to the extent that he laid down his life for us, he poured out his blood, he broke his body for our sin to make us clean, having descended from heaven to earth and set aside his glory and done so so sacrificially and personally and, and so intimately to serve us in our most profound need, Given the fact that God has done that, the other feature of this text is this question, how then ought we love one another? If God loves us like that, what's our love to look like for each other? Now, that's the right order to consider those issues. You start with Jesus. He is the orientation for our love. He is the orienting reality for our love. If you don't start with Jesus, you might end up all over the place in the name of love all over the map. But you start with Jesus, and then in light of how he loved and why he loved, how we to love. So John 13, 13. Are you going to follow with me? You got your scriptures? You got your Bible app open? John 13, 13. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly. That's who I am. That's what I am. I'm teacher and Lord. Keep those two ideas together in your head for a moment. I'm teacher and Lord. In other words, you get an A on your report card this week on this test. Your profession of me as teacher and Lord is sound. 
It is correct. You got the Bible school answer right, okay? But what we may not be getting right is the second half of that. And that is, what is the implications of what Jesus has taught us? What are the implications of lordship? What is the content of my character, of my teaching, of my life? Jesus is asking them, if it's not love, what is it? How are you doing in love with each other? If you grasp my love, how is it changing your love? So verse 14, Jesus says, he's applying this. You know, So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You know, I, I was thinking this was on Wonder Years, but maybe it was Ferris Bueller. You remember uh, Ferris Bueller? Bueller, the teacher's droning on, and he's not paying attention and not applying the lesson writer, and, and he's trying to draw him in. Jesus kind of does a, a Bueller, Bueller moment here. He's like, so if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you know, pause, dramatic pause, what ought you do? So I've washed your feet. You ought to wash one another's feet. John 13, 15. I've given you an example so that you should, class, class, Bueller, Bueller, church, so that you would do just as I've done, you see? Now, toward the end of this chapter, John 13, lest we miss it, verses 34 and 35, Jesus reiterates this point. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I've loved you, you ought to. That's not too bad. Half of you did it. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. If you, we got two-thirds that time. Good job. Now, that's the other feature of the text. Is love played out. Love lived out in our relationships. Now, if only love... We're as simple as washing one another's feet. I think we'd all wash one another's feet. It would be easy. It's not the concept of Christ's love that we have difficulty comprehending. It's the daily application of Christ's love that we struggle with. It's not the concept of his love that we have trouble comprehending. It's the implementation of his love that we have so much difficulty. And the implementation of it is not just that God's teaching us something, but that he's actually Lord and that it's to be transformative teaching and transformative content. We're not just learning for learning's sake. We're being taught to obey. There's an outcome here, and it's love, and it's discipleship. Discipleship isn't just a matter of professing and speaking right answers like Jesus is Lord, Jesus is teacher, check, check, A. It's a matter of imitation, it's a matter of following Christ's example of living out love in a personally costly way, a sacrificial way, a redemptive way with others. God's love cost him everything. And if our love never costs us anything, can we really say that we've understood God's love? Now, the Apostle John wrote some letters to the church at Ephesus, 1 John, 2 John, Third John, and if you want to hear John, the apostle, wax eloquent on, we could do a third sermon, maybe we should, on John's application of the foot washing. That's actually not a bad idea. But we talked about Paul last week in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Uh, Peter, we're going to talk about him in a moment. But John's application is 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. 
then how can you say you love God if you don't love your neighbor or your brother or help somebody or respond to them in any kind of way that's human or divine? So I want you to consider John 13, and I want you to consider the relationships that Jesus has in John 13. Now, he's got 12 disciples, and the women and others are probably gathered as well. But in John 13, there are two personalities that get thrust into the limelight that Jesus is going to love. And the first one is Peter, who I call bumbling Peter sometimes because his words get ahead of his brain. And that happens to me sometimes. And so, you know, Peter's like, he throws something out there and then he has to retract it and eat it and, and like kind of pull back and, and, and recalibrate, right? And that's Peter. And Peter's watching Jesus, you remember, wash the different disciples' feet. And he wasn't first in line, but maybe he was second or third in line, who knows? But when Jesus comes to him, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And he says to Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. And, uh, and Peter, Jesus says, he says, what I'm doing, you don't realize now. But afterward, later on, you're going to understand. That's how we know this isn't just about foot washing. Because Peter would have understood foot washing. My feet are uncomfortable, there's grains of sand in there, whatever, wash them out. I'm comfortable, I'm kicking my feet up, we're having a nice evening, we're reclining at the table, I'm eating, I'm drinking, we're having a party. You know, he understood all that part of it. But what Jesus was doing, he didn't fully understand, but he would later. So Jesus tells him, not only will you realize it later, he says, if I don't wash you, If I don't wash you, you will have no part with me. Now, I want everyone here to really think about what Jesus is saying to Peter. Very clearly, by the way, in no uncertain terms. If I don't wash you, you have no part in me. If you don't let me do for you what only I can do for you, you have no part in me. If I don't wash you, your sins remain. If I don't wash you, the wrath of God remains upon you. If I don't wash you, your own righteousness will be like filthy rags before my Father and you won't be accepted in. Your petty justifications, your hollow moralizing will fail you on the day of judgment. You need something that eclipses your justifications and that thing is the blood of Jesus Christ He's your justification, his righteousness before a holy father. You need a different garment if you're going to be part of that wedding banquet on the last day. You're going to need Christ to clothe you, Christ to wash you, Christ to ready you. If I don't wash you, you cannot pass from death into life. You know, the twin commands of scripture are repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. When you're baptized, you are accepting your need to be washed of your sin by God in a way that God chooses, in a way that only God can do. That's baptism. It's a humbling thing to be baptized. Peter, uh, filled with pride, kind of bristled at the idea of his foot being washed. How much more do people bristle at having their whole body bathed, their whole body washed? But it takes a, it's a humbling thing to be baptized to confess your need that you need to be washed just like everybody else, to repent and to submit to such a thing. 
And Peter, as much as anybody, probably wrestled with the humility of that. But what Jesus was doing then, he didn't understand, but later he would. When did, late, when did Peter later understand John 13? When did Peter later understand foot washing? The larger meaning and implications of foot washing, not just the superficial uh, sacramental act or whatever it may be. That later is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 4. Uh, Peter speaks later on about his understanding of salvation and, and, and how even baptism and faith and repentance relate to that salvation. Jesus said, you don't realize it now, but later you will understand. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, describes baptism this way. He recalls that Christ suffered for sins once and for all. It's all about Christ. The righteous for the unrighteous. He did it in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and proclaimed, uh, made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few people, that is eight people, were saved through water. And so this baptism, which corresponds to that, now saves you also. It's not what it appears to be. It's not the removal of dirt from the body. Uh, I'm washing your feet. I'm cleansing sand from between your toes. You don't understand now, but later you will. There's much more being portrayed here and pictured here of consequence than a mere washing, a physical act. It's not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus. It's a plea of the resurrection by virtue of Christ's resurrection to be saved. And by the way, this Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. The key to understanding these verses is John 13. I think Peter is specifically reflecting back on John 13 when he penned 1 Peter 3, these words about baptism. Uh, back in Noah's day, there was a lot of unrepentant people. There was a lot of stubborn, godless people in the days of Noah. They mocked the preaching of Noah at every turn. They mocked his righteousness. They mocked any notion of, of, of judgment or the coming flood or any kind of accountability before God whatsoever. Peter reflects on that also in First Peter and Second Peter. He says, you know, in the days of Noah, everybody was laughing and carousing and carrying on, and, 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 uh, and then the rain started to come, and they mocked the idea that they were going to be accountable, but then they were. But there was a family that understood that God was about to cleanse the world of sin and that only God could save them from certain judgment and death. And that family was Noah, a family of eight. And they were asked to build an ark. And the water that served as judgment on the earth became the occasion of salvation for Noah and his family. And the water that saves them symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. No, it's not removal of dirt, foot washing. It's a pledge of a good conscience. Now, 1 Peter 3 hugs and parallels John 13 in this way. Peter recalls how he knew where Jesus came from. 
He said he came from the Father, he suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Peter reflects on the same thing that he does, that John does in first or in, in John 13. Where did the Father come from? He knew Jesus came from the Father. But Peter also recalls where Jesus is going in the future. And he says Jesus was raised and he, pro- he made proclamation. He's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers now in submission to him. Well, we know where we came from. We know where we're going. We know where we will one day stand and who will stand before. In 1 Peter 3, Peter is now applying these truths to his own life. So just like Jesus in John 13, in light of our sin, in light of the coming judgment, how ought we respond? We ought to repent. We ought to submit. We ought to let Jesus wash whatever Jesus wants to wash, make holy whatever he wants to make holy, whatever part he deems fit, however he chooses. That's Peter's application. Jesus, not just my feet, but all of me. In light of where you came from and where you're returning, 1 Peter 3, baptism is an opportunity for us to make a plea to God by virtue of Christ, by virtue of his resurrection, to save us and wash us in the way we need to be saved and washed. You know, it's kind of ridiculous. People ask, do I literally need to be baptized in water? Or else I have no part in Christ? Peter, that was his question. And you saw how Jesus dismissed it. We should understand more deeply that it isn't our dirty toes that Jesus is worried about. It's our corrupted soul. And when Peter realized the depths of his need for cleansing, he was like, wash all of me. You know, have your way with all of me. And I think that's the spirit of baptism. It's the spirit of foot washing, at least as far as Peter's concerned, that we accept not just a mental idea, a theological idea, a spiritual idea of, of being cleansed, some truth out there ethereally, but that we tangibly demonstrate and enter into that washing and forgiveness in real world space and time, that we demonstrate a willingness, demonstrate a humility, that we let Jesus wash away our body of sin. What if Peter would, say, would have said, sorry, Jesus, um, I, I know that you love me. I got the lesson. But I'm still not going to let you wash my feet. <laughs> you know, Jesus doesn't nuance all that. He just, you know, Peter uh, wasn't dumb enough to continue that line of thinking. Uh, what Peter does is he repents and he's baptized. And so we see three features of Peter's response. First of all, there's a gospel to understand. Jesus came from God to suffer righteous for unrighteous to bring us to God. There's a conscience to be pledged that God wants our very heart and and he wants us to plead to him for salvation by virtue of resurrection. But the other feature is that there's a life of love to live. So right after 1 Peter 3, when when, uh, Peter talks about baptism, here's what he says, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, right, that's where we have trouble. Therefore, what do we do about this? Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same understanding. Paul says, have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Uh, Peter says, arm yourself with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for the will of God. For there has already been enough time spent 
and us doing what the Gentiles are choosing to do. We spend enough time carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, lawless idolatry. You know, people are surprised when you don't throw in with them in the same flood of wild living. And people will slander you if you don't join with them in the world. But they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And that's the reason the gospel was preached to those who are dying, who are now dead. It's although they might be judged in the flesh, according to human standards, they might live in the spirit, according to God's standards. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Uh, If that was true for, for Peter, it's true for us. Therefore, be alert and sober minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another. Jesus, John 13, it's all about hospitality. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve as good stewards of God's grace. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If you serve, serve with the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Christ Jesus and everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Let me tell you that the kind of foot washing that Jesus is concerned about isn't the literal kind, but the 1 Peter 4 kind. That we'd show hospitality, that we would serve, that we'd love sacrificially, that love would triumph hate and evil, that we would serve with God's strength, we would glorify him in everything, we'd proclaim gospel to each other and to our world. Uh, Peter, the application of John 13 is a pledge of a good conscience and a life lived in light of destiny. Now, ironically, there's another person in this passage, John 13, that we have to deal with. This other person, by the way, didn't have any qualms with Jesus washing his feet. Do you know what his name is? Judas. Judas didn't care whether Jesus washed his feet or not. He he was a participant in this meal, in this foot washing in John 13. But John 13 tells us some stuff about Judas. Verse 2, it says, When the time came for supper, the devil had put it into the heart of Judas Simon Iscariot's son, to betray Jesus. Judas had moral agency. He wasn't just a passive victim of some diabolical eternal plot. He was a participant. God put, uh, the devil put something on his heart that he then chose and lived into and followed through upon. Verse 10, Jesus ominously tells Peter, Peter, you're clean. But not all of you are clean. He washed all their feet, didn't he? But you're clean, but not all of you are clean. There's someone who, even though they've had their feet washed, still isn't right before God. John editorializes in verse 11, John 13, 11. He says, Jesus knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Somebody's heart wasn't in alignment with the spirit of that occasion. John 13, 14 through 50, the spirit of the occasion. If I've washed your feet, uh, you ought to wash each other's. If I set an example, you should follow. Verse 16, no servant's greater than his master. A messenger's not greater than the one who sent him. Uh, John 13, 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. If you have a relationship with Jesus as teacher, that's awesome. But if you want to be blessed, 
You need to have a relationship with him as teacher and Lord. So you call me teacher and Lord. You're blessed not just in what you know, but in, in how you act out and live it out. And discipleship is where you tap into the richness of the life and the blessing. It's not just attending services and getting information in your head. It's living it out and, and being, right, teaching people to obey, not just to have knowledge. So we get all that. You're blessed if you do. We don't just love God in our mind, but also our heart. We love God with our intent. We pledge to live for God with a clear conscience. We love God with our bodies, not just being baptized, but being taught to obey and do things in our bodies that Christ commanded. And so John 13, 18, there's a poser among us. One who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. If ever there was a demonic reference, that's Genesis, that God would provide an offspring of Eve and, uh, and that child uh, would have uh, its heel struck by the devil, right? And so uh, here's, you know, here's uh, Judas, he's going to raise his heel to strike out against Jesus. Uh, Satan uh, would crush, would try to crush Jesus. And, and Judas is his instrument. John 13, 19 through 20, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am he. Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. John 13, 21, when Jesus said this, he was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. One of you is filled with Satan. One of you is raising your heel against me. And Peter is like, who is it, Jesus? Who is it? Tell us, tell us, you know. And Jesus says, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I've dipped it. And after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him, which is a progression. He's acting. Satan now enters him. In verse 27, Jesus tells Judas, what you're doing, do it quickly. Your betrayal, do it quickly. Jesus, we're told, was showing the full extent of his love, not just to Peter, but to Judas as well. The difference between these two men is that Peter was repentant, responsive, teachable, moldable, humble, but Judas was resistant, filled with Satan, literally himself. It's a profound mystery, but the same love that redeems Peter also releases Judas. When there's repentance, there's redemption. When there's non-repentance, there's release. How could a God, loving God ever release a person to Satan? Uh, release a person to their evil scheme. You know, Judas stands as a kind of warning to us. You know, Judas went through all the sacramental motions of baptism, of the Lord's table, of foot washing, but what was missing was his heart was far from God. When I read this text, I ask myself a, a very important question of self-examination, and it's this. Do we not suppose that we can go through the motions of religion without being truly saved? 
we can go through, baptism can be a charade. Foot washing can be a charade. Uh, baptism can be a charade. Profession can be a charade. You're blessed by what you do. You know, if, if it's truly infected your heart, the love of God, it'll transform what you do. If Jesus is truly teacher, then he's truly Lord. And he's both. And you'll learn the lessons of a Peter. And the, the first Peter 3 and, and first Peter 4 kind of lessons. But if all of our religious motions are a sham, might we share in a fate like someone like Judas going through the motions while far from God? These words are a kind of ominous warning, don't you agree? These two personalities featured are antithetical to each other. How could God release Judas? Well, think of it this way. We all have a conscience, a moral conscience, because we were created by a holy God, and we know we've fallen short of that holiness, and we all have a conscience. But when that conscience becomes seared, it sets in motion a series of responses, if you will, graces that God provides to get our attention. One of those graces is government. So early in Genesis, you see the emergence of government. And, and government really only has one purpose, and that is to provide minimal restraint so that we don't kill ourselves and kill each other. That's really the role of government. And there's good government and there's evil government. And men corrupt government. And so government, even though it's a provision of grace, it's not salvation. It's not the ultimate solution. And that's why government isn't the ultimate solution today. Uh, the gospel is. So when the gospel, when government fails, God raises up. Abraham eventually raises up Moses, and he provides the law. Why did God give the law? God gave the law so that in our conscience, we would understand the full extent of our sin and all of its detail, all the different ways that we fall short of the glory of God. The law is like a mirror that when we look into it, we're like, I got to fix my hair or do something, you know, to get, to get cleaned up, to get right. It should make us understand our need in a profound way. But if you don't respond to the law, then what's next? You have the sacrifices, this river of blood literally flowing from the temple, from the tabernacle first, but from the temple later. And what was the purpose of the, the sacrifice of millions and millions of animals that were innocent without blemish, that were righteous in a way, or symbols of righteousness? It was that we would realize the cost of our sin was gonna be the righteous for the unrighteous, uh, the, the unblemished for the blemished, the holy for the unholy, the sacrifices, that blood ought to get your attention. We always, blood always gets our attention, right? Like we get freaked out by it. You see a little blood. It's like something, life and death is happening. We better pay attention. If blood doesn't get your attention, if the law doesn't get your attention, if the punishments of government don't get your attention, what else is there? Well, Jesus, or God, I should say, the Father raised up judges and kings and the judges and kings sought to be God's agents to establish God's law amongst the people. And people rebelled against them. And there were good kings and bad kings and good judges and bad judges. And people were rebellious. And so God raised up prophets. And the prophets in no uncertain terms warned God's people of the coming judgment and wrath. That if they continue on their path and harden their hearts against God, that there would be hell to pay, quite literally. And God raised up servants. And what did they do to God's prophets and servants? They martyred them, one after another. 
And so Israel is repeatedly released to themselves. They're released to pain. They're released to death. They're released to suffering. They're exiled. They have to face uh, the reality of their sin without the protective insulation of God. And it's all over the Old Testament. We don't like to talk about it. But the suffering is unbelievable when you step outside of God's protection and care and salvation. But that wasn't the final word of God. The final word of God is that God would send a solution, a savior, his son Jesus Christ into the world to suffer and die that we might be brought back to God, 1 Peter 3. Well, if God sends his son and the son is the final solution, and he speaks a word to us of salvation, and we betray that son, hang that son to die on a cross. If we reject Christ, then what else is there for God to do for us? If pain and sin and death itself doesn't wake us up, and God's son doesn't wake us up, Jesus says, I'm not going to judge you at that point. My word, like, it's a settled matter at that point. (laughs) Repentance leads to redemption. But Judas hardened his heart and release leads to more release, leads to death. Go read Romans 1 if you want to know what it looks like. The releasing love of God. It's done in love because God doesn't just immediately bring all judgment down on us. He exposes us increasingly to the pain of our ways in hopes that we would escape the trap of the devil and come to our our senses and repent. Romans 1 is a picture of that kind of love. The same love that redeems Peter releases Judas. And their destinies are very different, aren't they? They're very different indeed. Where are you in relationship to the Son, Jesus Christ? God would have you make a plea of a good conscience to live for God by virtue of Jesus' resurrection. That you would cry out to God and say, God, wash me, cleanse me. I bend my knee. I'm teachable, be my Lord, and live out this life of love. God would have us be like Peter, ultimately, and not like Judas. Where are you at? Uh, This morning, I give you an invitation to repent and believe, to repent and be baptized, to repent and take steps. We have the pathway class that we do, which is a, a, a Sunday morning class that talks about how to respond to salvation and take steps and repent and believe. We've got the Welcome to Lakeside class, which talks about what God's doing through our church, and we outline the gospel in there as well. You can tap on my shoulder. You can walk up to me and say, I want to be baptized. I want to take steps. I want to... You can come to one of the tables in the back of the room at the end of the service and express a desire for God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. But do not ignore the Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for washing our feet, for descending and cleansing us and ascending. We pray that we can live out your love in our lives, that we can respond, that we can have the same understanding that Peter did, a gospel understanding, a clear conscience, a life of love lived to glorify you. Help us to wrap our minds around uh, your supper, your meal. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.